one. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Melanin Margin. I'm your host, Quabiandre Williams. And I'm Daquan Wilson. And this is the talk show dedicated to bringing the marginalized to the spotlight and uplift Black voices that will no longer stay silent. So let's get into this week's race conversation, the education system. So Daquan, I want to ask you a question. Is a certain degree of education necessary for success? Mm, no, <laughs> I think that <laughs> I think that we have this idea that in order to be quote unquote educated, you need to be, you know, going through this formal education process to, you know, do whatever you need to do. But in reality, I'll even like ask somebody that's done like tons of research that has, you know, network with these great academics, like the theories that they are making the quote unquote lay people are doing every day. Like you have all of these academics talking about, this is, you know, this is black studies. This is like the black experience. And, you know, every regular day black people are doing this theorizing every day. They just don't have the same terms that, you know, academics use. They don't have the same jargon and vernacular. Um, but unfortunately, the entire society doesn't think like I do. And unfortunately, when you live in a capitalistic society, they try to put all of these different barriers in front of you and education is one of them. So you'll see a lot of times that like, if you want this high paying successful jobs, a lot of them require some type of degree or formal education because they're like, oh, well, like that's how we can like know that you're certified that's how we can know that you like you have all what it takes and you have all of these qualifications um but that's not the end all be all there's plenty of jobs that you know you can do with a high school diploma or, or maybe even like a two-year degree that are high paying and do get you what you need to live but of course you know our society isn't promoting those as much yeah i think that when it comes to education like it's one of those things where it's a really finicky conversation, a very finicky topic, because the reality is in some situations, there's definitely an understanding as to why you need to be educated on certain right. aspects. So like, you know, being a doctor or being a lawyer, you know, there's a degree of experience necessary and required to make sure that you're in a position to, you know, get, get what needs to get done, done. Like if you don't know about the body parts and how they react to certain things and whatever, whatever, you could fuck up somebody's body in the medicine situation, you right. know, especially with psychiatry, you know, you have to go to, you have to go to medical school for psychiatry because you're prescribing medications and you have to know how that medication affects someone's brain, how that might affect any other medication that they're taking. So there's definitely like chemical processes that go on there. So I do understand why education is necessary in those aspects. However, I do want to push back on the idea that education is necessary to be a successful person. That we've, like you said, that has been ingrained in our society because in some career paths, yes, education is necessary for better success, but it does not necessarily equal success. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Like yeah. for a actor or a dancer or a singer or a you know performer of any kind or a writer, you know there is a degree of natural skill set. There's a degree of natural um, understanding of a material, if that makes sense. Like you, you can't teach someone to dance from their heart. You can't teach someone to write from their heart. Just like you can't teach someone to want to help people. So I do think that there is 
a base level that a base level that we all kind of have in our specific kind of passions and stuff. Like there's things like with for you specifically, like especially in poetry, like I'm not a poet, I'm a writer. And those are two different things. And the spirits, the, the, the energy that you evoke and that brings about your poetry and the way that it does, I don't have that same thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like, I feel like in that, in that conversation, I feel like when it comes to education, I feel like it can definitely be a supplementary aspect of something. It can, it, it can supplement what you already have. Like even if a doc, like I could go to I could go to school to be a doctor, but if I don't have the basics, as in like my own basic uh, fascination with it, or my my own basic personal research, because there's a, there used to be I think back in the day I don't know if this is true or not. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like I believe that in New York City a couple years back I don't know how far along it was, but they said that as long as you could pass the bar, you could be a lawyer. Like you I didn't have to go to traditional schools. What were we saying? Yeah, I think I remember hearing that. Yeah, and it's like, if you pass the standards and procedures application to be a lawyer, you should be qualified to be a lawyer. And I think honestly and truly, I think in the same vein, that's why I say the education, it's, it's a really finicky thing because like, if, if I can't afford, let's say I can't afford to go to medical school, right? but I have medical textbooks at my house and I have, you know, practice with other things. I've, I've seen videos, I've watched, I've watched, you know, thing. I, I've been in those environments or whatever the case may be. I've studied with people, you know what I'm saying? Even though I didn't go to medical school, if I can pass the standards and practices of what is required of someone who took 10, five, however many years of schooling, am I still qualified to be a doctor? Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And I think that it's also like that entire notion just like rubs some people the wrong way because then they can't have their elitist gatekeeping that they usually do. Ugh. Because in that sense, if, you know, you can own your own kind of learn through all of these different textbooks, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you can shadow somebody, kind of get your hands on um, mm -hmm. a mentor for you to like kind of get that knowledge and get that kind of technical experience that also comes with it, then, you know, you can't have these schools and all of these different elite institutions being like, well, we're the world class and you got to go through me to like be the best of the best. Because then you have all of these different people who, you know, may not have the means to afford medical school or law school or whatever, being able to still do the same thing. And so that just like creates this shift in all of our different systems. I, I fully agree. I think it's so crazy because like I said, nobody taught you how to be a poet. Nobody taught me how to be a writer or a performer or an actor, whatever, whatever. That's just something that I, that I have that I've been introduced to in my own way. And that has spoke to me in some way, fashion or form. And I think the same is true of like lawyers and doctors and whatever, like any practical career. I think that in all career paths, there's a natural inclination to want to know more about it. And I feel, and I honestly do feel this way that like, yes, education can be, and like I said, a supplementary aspect of it but I don't think that it is required to be talented or to be successful because even though you may not have gone to school for lawyering, you are still on the same academic level as someone who's been to school for, for five, six, seven years. 
and you're still on the same. It's just this. It's just the idea of like a prodigy or a progeny or somebody who's just naturally inclined in it. And I think that that, like you said, that college elitism thing. I want to get. I want to. I want to piggyback on what you just uh, said there. Do you think that there is a certain level of prestige that comes from saying I have I have a degree in acting, I have a degree in singing? Does that do you think that a degree or a college education makes you more qualified than someone who doesn't? Uh, I don't think so. I think that um, I do think that like colleges do try to promote this kind of elitism, like coming from somebody that went to a top 20 school. Like, you know, the first thing I heard about my school was how it was top 20, how it was elite and like had this world class education and world class faculty. Um, and I think that that's kind of promoted in our society because, you know, in this, you we have this like competition of life where everybody's trying to be the best of the best and try to like have all of these different resources and whatever. But I don't think that a single college degree can make you more qualified than somebody else. Like, for example, I'm going into teaching. I'll start teaching in the fall. I don't have an education degree. You know, my degree is not in education, it's in mm -hmm. African American studies, but I have all the skills. I have the different experiences in my past teaching. And so I I don't see why I can't teach when like I have phenomenal records in teaching and doing presentations and stuff like that. So like you telling me just because you have an education degree that you're better that you're better than me <laughs> could never but that's just me being <laughs> a capricorn <laughs> but no honestly sir and that's why i really think that like i think that it, it's just this thing in our society like you said before where a college degree or a degree in something makes you feel as if you arrived and i wanted to kind of jump on um there are certain jobs that don't require like you said before a um a master's degree or a doctorate or whatever 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 there are certain jobs you could just get and better in now, there was this one guy that I knew I had my old job who um is a who was a manager at there and he's like a, a re, he owns businesses he owns multiple businesses and he owns like you know a couple of complexes or whatever the case may be and I was talking I was like well, why do you work here and like what's what's like what is going on with your life like you know how did you get to where you are he's like well I work here because it, you know it's money you know whatever it's always some income coming in he was a real grinding hustling kind of person and um it was so crazy to me because he was telling me he was like well in my life, I, did, I dropped out of high school. Like, I, it was, school just wasn't for me. So I had to figure out how to live and I had to figure out on my own what to do. And I just thought that was so inspiring because it was like, for so many years, of course, because of what we learn in school and what we learn from our, our guidance counselors and our teachers, that college is the only way to go, that college is the only way that you're gonna make any kind of money. But this man was making almost six figures with a, a college, like a high school dropout. Mm -hmm. and making literal six figures i think he got his ged but he's making almost six figures and it's just crazy because like you said in our society we have this elitism that if you don't have a degree you're not as intelligent or you're not as smart or you're not as talented as somebody else when you can literally have the same degree the same level of talent as somebody but not have any of the quote-unquote college experience but still be on the same level and that's where i go back to that whole idea of like I think that colleges definitely should be available, but I don't think that we should have this kind of strict, like you have, like there's so many people that have been working at a job, right? And they have had years of experience doing the position that somebody else with a degree 
gets more money for because they're doing it. But the other person, they get passed up on the, uh, the promotion, get passed up on the extra money because they don't have the college degree. Yet their experience has taught them everything that a college degree would have. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that like even even as we see like different shifts in job markets, like it proves that, you know, it's not the paperwork that makes the person. Like mm -hmm. even as we think about what the... I think like 2008 recession did for jobs. Like there was a lot of jobs where, you know, could be entry level, no experience required whatsoever. But as that recession hit, people were like, dang, like so many people are losing jobs. So people who did have experience who were like kind of like middle management type took those entry level jobs because they just needed a job. They yeah. got laid off or whatever and started taking that and that's when the market shifted. So you have a lot more entry-level jobs being like, oh, you need three years experience. You need this type of degree whatsoever. And so it's not that the jobs are changing. It's not that the fact that like what you need to know how to do the job is changing. It's that these economic things, these outside pressures are changing how we view jobs and how we view the necessary qualifications for these jobs. Got you. Got you. Um, now, in the New York Times article titled A uh, Kind of Classroom, um, No Grades, No Failing, No Hurry, written by Kyle Spencer, um, he talks about a new program that is challenging the way that teachers and students think about academic accomplishments. Now, Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn Middle School is one of hundreds that have done away with traditional letter grades inside the classrooms. At this school, students are encouraged to focus instead on mastering a set of grade level Level skills like writing scientific hypotheses or identifying themes in a story, moving on to the next set of skills when they have developed the um, and demonstrated that they are ready for that particular skill set. Now, in these schools, there is no such thing as a C or D for a lazily written term paper. There is no such thing as failing, and the only goal is to learn the material sooner or later. Now, for struggling students, there is ample time to practice until they get it. So for those who grasp the concepts quickly, there is an opportunity to swiftly move ahead. Now, this type of learning is called mastery-based learning or proficiency-based learning. Um, and I just wanted to know, having heard this, do you believe that the factory grading system should remain in effect? I think the factory grading system is a little outdated or a lot of outdated, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's one of those things that like, it is kind of hard to, you know, how do you put a grade on mastery? How do you do this? And I think that it's also, how do we prioritize students and what they need and like mm -hmm. how they're learning? Because I think that a problem that comes from the factory grading system is that we have this increased competition that, yes. you know, everybody wants an A. If you're not getting that A, you're not like learning it whatsoever. And you have these very high competitive, situations that puts a lot of stress on students where you know maybe it's not that they don't know they just need more time to learn it or maybe they have some type of mastery over the topic but they're not a good test taker they're not you know proficient in like time management or something like that so you need to be able to find a way to check for that learning check for that understanding without just relying on grades 
Absolutely. Like, I think that the factory graded system is incredibly dated. And the fact that we're still using it in 2021 is so disgusting. Because honestly, I remember growing up and like when I would make an F or a D or a low grade on a paper, it wasn't like, okay, well, I can do better next time. It was like the end of the world. Like it was like, I will, I am dumb. I'm not smart. I will never get it. I'm not going to get it. And I think that when you see the word fail, it automatically makes you think you're trash. Like, I, yeah. Like calling someone a failure. Like if, if teachers not just, if teachers didn't give Fs and just said, hey, by the way, you are successful. You are a failure and moved on. That's what that is. I feel like it's more of like, in, in, in like a writing sense, it's a period instead of a comma. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, instead of saying, hey, you know, you're not quite there, but get, we're going we're gonna to work with you to get this into a better place. It's just like, it's it. You only have one chance and you're going to die. It's the Hunger Games. It's literally the Hunger Games. And it's like, if you aren't skilled enough already coming in, you're a failure. You're not good enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. We hold, we're holding you back. And I think that there's so much, there's so much negativity based around failing or not doing as well as your peers. I remember in high school, the balancing chemical equation shit, I just could not get it. Like for some reason, that shit was just not making no fucking sense to me. That shit was like, I mean, rocket science. I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of it. And everybody else in the class was just like, yes, bitch, fuck it up. And I just felt like, and they was all making A's and they was, you know, doing a dang thing. And I'm like, I, I really want the teacher to like go over it again. But like the more questions I'd ask, be like, well, why don't you get it? Well, everybody else has it. You're the only one who doesn't have it. And it was almost like a calling out mentality. And it's like, well, only three people, all, all three people fail, but all these people pass. And it was kind of like, it just really affected me so, so bad mentally. And it got me into this place of like, we talked about this before, but perfectionism and trying to be the best, even though there's no such thing. And realizing that about myself and looking at that stuff, it was just, I had, I had grown to hate myself so much growing up if I wasn't perfect all the time. If I didn't make an A on this test or I didn't pass everything. And like I said, it promoted me having to cheat because I was like, if, if as long as I have the A, not if I understand the material, but as long as I have the A, I'm good. Mm. Isn't that crazy? That is. And I think that's a product of like, that's a product of the grading system and like how we view education. Like I recently read this book that kind of talks about mindset and the difference between having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And I think that with our grading system, we have like this, you know, you did this assignment, you got an F, you don't understand what we're talking about. And instead of like having a way of, you know, trying to take that grade and make it better, it's just like, that's what's in the grade book, period. Yeah. And like, you don't have that same opportunity to grow and learn. And I think that's should be the most important part of education is learning, is teaching people how to learn, how they learn and why they learn certain things, not just what can you do to get that A. And I think that also promotes this sense of like, I'm just going to learn what I know I'm going going to be tested on instead of mm -hmm. really getting that material. So there's been plenty of times where I may have learned something, but the minute I didn't need it anymore, went out the door because I wasn't focused on learning. I was focused on getting that A. 
Exactly. I think that, and I really, you know, what really pisses me off is the idea that you can't retake a test. Mm. Like that is baffling to me that it's a, it's a gift. It's, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing a favor for you to allow the class to retake a test. Like it's, it's one of those things where like, she's like, well, obviously I didn't do it right. I I, I didn't teach the class. I'm going to allow you to retake the test because everybody didn't do it right. And I'm kind of like, but what about all the other tests that somebody might have done, not done as well on? What about the other, other assignments that people have not done as well on? Like my thing was, it, it doesn't make sense not to be able to retake and try again. And that's why I say like, I think that this, this type of learning, what I talked about in the, um, in the article would be so easy to, to implement, but people just don't want to because they just are focused on getting people to the next level, move on, move on, move on. And if somebody get left behind, they're left behind. Mm. Even though they call it no child left behind, they're pretty much left behind. Let's and be it, honest. Let's be all the way 100. And it's mostly black and brown kids. We'll get, but that's, uh, <laughs> but anyway, like I said, it's crazy to me that we have, like uh, to retake a test is supposed to be something that is a gift versus something that is a given. Like if I, like there was this one, I told like there was this one time I was in my, uh, my psychology class. I don't know if I told the story on the podcast before, but like in the class I had failed the test and I was like, I failed like two tests back to back. And it was only like, I think 10 tests in the whole semester. And I was like, I'm shit. <laughs> I failed the class. Like I'm just done. And thankfully, because I had also looked at that, I didn't read the book, but I watched the TED talk about growth mindset and the fixed mindset. And thankfully I was like, all right, well, I failed those two tests, but I'm gonna be all right. Cause I'm gonna try to pass these other two and I'm, uh, these other three left that were left to go or whatever. And thankfully I did pass the class. But like I said, because the, the teacher was just kind of like, yeah, you failed. You sure did. You did that. Retake? No, there's no retakes here. No, I don't do retakes. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't understand the material. I don't, I don't know what you want me to do here. And I don't, under, like I said, it just, it makes no sense to me because you would think that you would want the person or the student or the, uh, the student to understand the work that they're given, to understand the material that you're teaching and not just regurgitate because that's basically what you're doing. Oftentimes there is so much stuff. There's, there is so many classes that I made A's in that if you ask me a single question from any test from those classes, I'd be like, who? Who's that? Child. Child, What's anyway, it? so um, <laughs> who is, I don't know her. I don't, don't know, know her. her. Is and she like, booked? Huh? <laughs> is she booked? Is she booked? I don't know her. But like, and I, and I was, there was this one, there was only this one class that I really appreciated. And it was, it was, a, um, it was a, a professor who did history, right? And the way that he would teach it was that he'd be like, all right, y'all, I'm going to give you the questions to the test, right? So here are the questions. And it's all discussion-based, Right. So he'd be like, these are the questions. I'm going to talk about the answers to these questions all throughout, the t- all throughout, this, uh, all throughout these uh, five, two weeks or whatever that we're going to be covering this material, right? And after he was done covering the material, we all typed down our answers and our whatever, whatever. We've all, we've all put it in our own words or whatever because he didn't have any notes on the board, just the questions. And he'd answer the questions throughout the, the, um, this, the, uh, the period that he was teaching it. And so when he would get to the test day, he'd be like, all right, y'all, I'm going to choose five questions from everything on here to be on your test, but it's discussion questions, right? So we'd all have to put them in our own words. There was no A, B, and C. So when I would go to study, I would study all of my notes and answer the questions he gave me 
with my notes. So I would would reformat my notes into an answer in my own words, right? And I have to say that that was some of the most effective teaching I have ever experienced in my entire college, high school, middle school, elementary school career, because it wasn't A, B, C, D, hope I get lucky. It was like, okay, I have to comprehend what the question is asking me because there was no surprises on his test, no surprises. It was always the question. It was, he didn't tell us which questions he picked, but he'd be like, these are the 10 questions. I'm going to choose five. So you need to know all of them. And I have to tell you, Daquan, after that class, I still retain, even to this day, a lot of the material because of the way he taught it, because it was about how I interpreted the answer. Mm -hmm how I understood the lesson. And as long as I got the key points, as long as it was that, it was it, as long as it was my, the key points and, it, and I put it in my own words, that was what gave me the understanding. And I wish that more teachers would stop, get, get away from the ABCs and be like, okay, how did you interpret this scene? Now, this is how I interpret it. And this is why it's, uh, and this is what it's uh, blah, blah, whatever, whatever. But how did you interpret it? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, because that promotes your own thinking. That literally teaches you how to think rather than trying to memorize something and regurgitate it back. And I think I remember, I don't know where I saw it, but I saw this video of this, you know, teacher talking about how they always give open book tests and they Mm -hmm. think that closed book tests are kind of useless when it comes to education, because with a closed book test, you're just teaching somebody how to memorize something. They don't actually learn it but an open book test, like, sure, you may be able to go back and reference what, you know, you was using before, but if you have a certain time limit, you're not going to be able to look up every single answer and get it that Mm -hmm. way. Like, I've had plenty of tests in college where it was like, professor was like, yeah, you can reference your notes, you can look back over the material, but there's a time limit to this test. So you're not going to have this amount of time to like go back and look up every single thing you're going to have to maybe quickly reference something and then you know use that thinking abilities those critical thinking skills that we taught you in order to create a response and get something out and I think that is so important when it comes to learning and if we're being honest like in everyday life we have something at the palm of our hands where we can just quickly reference something like beyond beyond like, you know, basic math, you know, basic, you know, foundational things, Mm -hmm. when you get to more advanced learning, like, it's not all about memorization, it's about learning it, it's about knowing how to think, but also knowing how to search things up and research and like, get that information out. I fully agree. I think that it's, and I think that so many more people like, even if, like, the thing about it is, Everybody wants to be, like you said, into this memorization, regurgitation, learning curve. That's what they want to do. And that's how they see you as successful is if you remember enough stuff. And the crazy part that I think is that like those things do not get put into the base memory. I don't know which one it's called, but it doesn't get long-term. It's not long-term. It's very short-term memory. Cause I'm like A, B, C, D, E. Or I think uh, blah and blah, blah and blah, that's and this and that and that and that and that. And then once it's gone, I'm gone. It's gone. It's, it's completely gone. Like final exams, shit, bitch. Because I will be literally just bam, 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 I'm done. But like every class that I've had that has been discussion-based 
even my math classes that has been about trying to get people to understand the material, to comprehend what's being taught, not just say, this is the formula, but this is why this formula works. If you get it another way, that's fine. And that's another fucking thing. Let's, let's just talk about that shit. There are so many teachers who are like, especially in math, who are like, you needed to show your work. And it's like, bitch, <laughs> like, is the answer correct? Like, and I just never understood that. It's kind of like, if I, if because you didn't do the formula the way they did it, it's wrong. And it's like, that makes no sense because that's, once again, like you said, it's not promoting competency-based learning. It's not, it's not doing proficiency-based learning. It's promoting, you need to do it exactly how blank, blank, and blank. It's very factory setting. It's very directions, the instructions. But just like in cooking, just like in anything in life, there has to be some personal input in it. Anybody can teach you how to write, mm -hmm. but if you don't have your own spin on a story, you're just regurgitating what your teacher told you to say. Okay, this is what I'm gonna make a creative story about an apple and blah, 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 whatever. But if you don't have that input of your own personal belief or your own personal um, socioeconomic status and where you've come from and where you've lived and your own uh, culture and experiences and you use all of that to form your creativity, the same thing with discussions. If you don't take, if you take in the information and you have your notes down, I feel like you should be able to use your notes in the test because the reality is my notes are my interpretation of the material. So I'm going to use my notes to reference how I'm going to speak. Like you said, you can't look through all the notes at one time. Right. But if you are someone who knows how to reword and restructure that teaches you, okay, it's, it takes away the stress of, I need to remember everything. And it more so goes into, okay, how do I format what I've learned in a way that I understand and can communicate? Yeah, I think that the biggest problem is we're not teaching to teach. We're not teaching, you know, so that people can have this mastery over concepts and understand like the critical thinking skills that we need. We're teaching to a test. And I think that, you know, standardized testing is becoming such a big focus in so many schools. So I wanted to ask you, why are schools so focused on standardized testing? I think it's all about trying to create great model citizens. I think it's about making sure that people are getting practical jobs in a practical setting so they can stifle out creativity. And I think that that's exactly where that factory standard grade, standard te standardized testifying for because just because you're a good test taker does not mean that you're going to be successful. Not at all. It means that you recognize patterns in test taking. And that's not the same thing as like we talked about comprehending the material. And I think that a lot of that standardized testing comes from is once again, standardized testing is already racist, number one. <laughs> <laughs> number one, for a majority of different reasons that we can't even get into in one podcast. But the reality is it's it's so geared towards trying to create, like I said, the model practical citizen with the 2.5 poem or the whatever, whatever. It's very specific in that regard. And the truth is a lot of the standardized testing that we see is honestly most of the stuff that they're teaching you, once again, is not applicable in the real life setting. A lot of this stuff is about, once again, regurgitating information. Standardized testing are making sure that you are able to follow instructions. You're able to stand in line, that you're in the box. Right. You can't step outside of the box of standardized testing. You can't, in a lot, a lot of standardized testing does not have discussion-based stuff. 
It's no. A, B, or what C and D. It is not about comprehensory. It's not about comprehending the material. It's about being able to understand the rules and regulations. It's teaching us in a weird subconscious way that there is only one way to do things. And if it is not done that way, then you are not a good person. You're not a successful person. It's the reason why SATs and ACTs are still a thing because they want to show you you're going to be successful if you have an ACT score that's high or the SAT score that's high. Colleges don't care about you if you don't have a high SAT or ACT score. If you're not a good standardized test taker, then you obviously can't survive in life. And that's the subconscious things that it teaches us. Even though in reality, being a good test taker has, like I said, being a good test taker has nothing to do with your actual comprehensory of the skills. Most of the time, it has everything to do with if you can see and recognize patterns in writing and in, 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 the, um, in the work itself. But I want to pass it back to you. How do you think that? Do you think that standardized testing is, a, is um, why it's here? Like, what? Yeah. what, what? <laughs> I 100% I agree with you. And I think it's even reflected on like, how we take standardized testing like I don't know about you but I hated school whenever it was testing season because it literally felt like prison it was like oh yeah all right you got to be here at this time at this day when you get in the room you can't talk to anybody you can't have anything on your desk you can't take a sip of water like it was literally just like <laughs> don't use the bathroom <laughs> right you can't use the bath like fall in line do what needs to be done or your test is invalid like literally it was crazy all of the rules and rigidity that went into taking a standardized test and i think going back like let's talk about the racism you know the sat was created by somebody who was you a eugenicist somebody that believed that black people were inferior biologically and believed that testing can prove that so you have a test that was literally designed to make black people statistically inferior and we're mm -hmm. still using that to this day like mm -hmm. you don't think those roots are still in the system no modifications or nothing and i wanted to piggyback on it i wanted to wait till you finish but when you said how it's so rigid and how you can't go anywhere you know it's teaching us how to be at a job it's teaching us how to be at a job. That's why testing is so long throughout the day. Usually testing is from the morning to the afternoon, which is what an eight hour shift. Mm. It's teaching you that when you're on the clock, you can only use, you can only go to lunch breaks when the person is, is schedules one. Right. On a tight schedule. You can't move from your seat or you can't move from your quote unquote cubicle or your position wherever you are. You have to focus on this task for eight hours a day for usually a week is usually when testing is. So it's from the morning all the way up to the afternoon and you only get one lunch and maybe two breaks, which maybe. is what the standard in life in going to a regular nine to five. And so it even goes further into that. And like you said before, the fact that we're still using a racist test taking system in 2021, in 2021 and no modifications have been made. Like, I really don't understand why the SAT or the ACT is not a group activity. Like, if well, anything, it still exists. Like, oh, these yeah, that were, too. These <laughs> things were created in, like, 1926. The ACT was created in, like, 1950s. Like, these are outdated systems. But, like, it, but I'm saying, like, even in that situation, like, having the fact of having a group aesthetic or trying to teach people to work as a unit 
versus as individuals, I think that would be more beneficial in the long run because not only does it expose you to different cultures, but it also helps you understand different viewpoints and come together to coalesce into your own answers, into your own conversations or whatever the case or whatever thing you're doing. But remember, if we teach people how to be in groups, they're going to get group power. They're going to think that they have collective power. They are going to have think that they have more power as a group than an individual. And they're going to begin questioning what we do. Absolutely. You better say that. You better say that. Just but like, saying. seriously, it's, it's a, like you said, it's honestly the SAT and the ACT are outdated. And I think all, honestly, the benchmark past testing, like that's, I mean, honestly, some of my most stressful memories in my past has been associated with benchmark. I can vividly remember benchmark testing. I can vividly remember benchmark scores coming back and wondering if I was smart. I, I remember vividly past testing and what is it? Final, final, te- what is it called? FAC, what is it? What is it? Final, um, final exam testing is called yeah, a, or something. something. Something, but bullshit, bullshit is what it's called. <laughs> but like the fact that we have these, ba- these standardized tests in the first place in the first place it's so indicative of how we have still not moved out of that aspect of society we have still not moved into a more community-based society and a a society that also does not stifle creativity because a lot of people are not going to be doctors and lawyers or teachers or you know more practical careers other people have have ambitions in writing and singing and acting and dancing and they are not given those opportunities because why we're in the standardized, this is what you gotta do. And I wanted to kind of pick it, go back a little bit. Um, I wanna ask you, Daquan, why are we not teaching our younger generation about applicable skills that they're gonna need in life? (laughs) Because we're not preparing students to, you know, do these type of things. I think that it's part of like this elitism and like this way to kind of privilege wealthier and affluent communities because you know those communities can you know pay somebody to teach them how to do their taxes or pay somebody to do their taxes or they have like all this time because you know if you go to you know places that are in poverty like their parents are working two to three jobs just to support this the child and so you don't have that same time for the parents to be a part of their education like in other communities. And so a lot of times we have this idea that, oh, you know, how to balance a checkbook or how to do your taxes. That's something that your parents should teach you. But if the parents don't have the time to do it, why is this not built into our school system? Why are we not building our students to be successful? Why are we not building our students to be adults? Like that's the reality. Like me and Daquan went to the same high school uh, during our senior year. And there was this class called service learning. And it was taught by Miss Danae James. She's not with us anymore. Um, she passed away, but I have to say Daquan, I don't know how it affected you, but that service learning class was, I think the most in- like influential class in my future. Like right. it, it's to this day, I have to say that I learned the most about being a person or being a adult from that class because in this class miss james gave us this book called who owns the ice house and we had to study about that and learn through those stories and learn about uncle cleave and how he had and how and if you get a chance please read it's an amazing book but 
basically the class was teaching us applicable skills about life opportunity um saving and, and, and investing and stuff like that and she told us how to actually do a job interview how to make a resume things that we did not learn up until this point most people are already working but don't even know how to make a resume and this class was given to us at the, and this class was not something that was instilled in every every um every school this is something that was an extra thing for us and income and for me i had it with my economics class so i had both of those classes at the same time and it was just i mean mind like just mind-boggling teaching me how to balance like i said balance my income balance how to uh pay bills how to make sure i take away and how to make sure i save and it was so crazy because there was this one particular story i was in class and i was taking the opportunity test and Dequan, i don't know if you remember, I remember you don't know if you remember this one but she said, all right, y'all, make sure you read all the questions on the test before you answer the questions and then get into whatever you're getting into. And I was like, well, okay, let me just read all the questions. So I went through, now everybody's already getting started. Other people in the class are getting started, getting started, going through the test. And I read through the entire test. And at the end of the test, it said, if you have found, if you have read this far and you have found the golden opportunity, that means you can get up, write your name on the test, come up to my desk, Give it to me and you get an automatic A. Now, I saw two other people get up to do it. And you only, it, was, it was on a time window, like it was only on 10 minutes I think she had it for. And I was so nervous because I was like, this is too good to be true. Like this can't be like what it is, right? And I was sitting there doubting myself over and over again, like, uh, should I, should I, no, nah. and the timer went off. And when I tell you I was pissed, when I tell you I was furious and I walked out of class and she had came out to me, I'm telling this, I mean, Miss Danae James, baby, she knew what she was doing. She was a teacher, baby, by heart. She came outside and she was like, and I was about to cry. I was, I was about, to, about to be in tears, Daquan, I was so mad. And she was like, what's going on? What happened? What's going on? What, what happened to you? Because I saw you see that, I saw you see it and you didn't do anything. So why didn't you take that opportunity? And I was like, well, I just thought it wasn't real or whatever. She's like, I'm gonna stop you right there. She's like, I'm gonna stop you right there. Um, in life, you're going to be given opportunities. And even if it doesn't seem real, if it's an opportunity that you have seen and you're looking in this, I have no reason to trick you. And she was telling me, I have no reason to trick you. I have no reason to put that question on the test. If someone gives you a shot, you have to take it right then and there. Now, I'm not going to let you take the test again. I'm going to grade the test like it is. You go set through the questions. She was like, no, no. <laughs> you still going to do the questions now that you missed, you missed the chance. But she was like, I want this to be a lesson for you in life is that when you are given an opportunity in life, you take it. When you're given a chance and there is, and it's not any red flags about it, you take that chance because you never know if you're going to get it again. And just like you lost this one, imagine if this was a publishing deal or an agency deal or whatever we're talking about my career or something like that, or an acting thing, and you just said, I'm not going to do that. You say no to yourself before you even give somebody a chance to say no. If it wasn't real and you walked up to me, what did you have to lose if I would have told you, no, that's not really what it was? And I was like, damn, not you teaching me. <laughs> I was like, damn, not teaching me. But she was like, what did you have to lose by getting up and coming over here just to see if it was real? Just to see. But I was so afraid and so full of my own self-doubt that I didn't give myself a chance to take that opportunity. Now I tell the story to just showcase how impactful it is for students to learn these skills, to learn these things, because that was the only class I'd ever had that in that lesson still stays with me to this day. Right, and I have to echo literally everything 
like, you know, Miss James was like one of my greatest mentors. Like I would not be where I am if it wasn't for her. Like she, I was in her office every day, every single day. <laughs> I, like people know, like if it was the morning and you wanted to find me, I was probably in her office because we had such valuable conversations and she saw so much in me that like I didn't see in myself. But also it was a situation where, you know, all throughout school, like I was like this gifted child, like I was quiet, I got good grades. And so teachers was like, oh, you're good. Uh, I, I'm gonna deal with these students. You, you're, you're gonna be good by yourself. And like, just like kind of brushed me off because they were mm-hmm. like, you're gonna get an A anyway. So like, I don't need to spend time with you. But Ms. James was like that one teacher that was like, I'm gonna to get to know my students. like. I am going to know who they are. I'm going to have conversations with them. And I think that was why her mentorship was so powerful. And I remember that opportunity test. And I remember seeing that same question. And I too was just like, like, is, is, is this for real? Yeah. And so I was like, let me like try to quickly answer some questions just in case it wasn't so I can like, if it wasn't, then like I have something and I'll have a decent grade. And I remember taking that opportunity. Um, and it was just like, it taught me so much. Like that entire class taught me so much. And we need more classes like that. We need more classes that teach students how to be people. We need Ooh. classes that teach students, you know, to see the best in themselves and to mm. see the power that they have, but also just like broaden their eyes to like what's out there and what th- they can do. Like, I remember when we took like the strengths builder test and yes. like, <laughs> you know, here's like different career paths that the strengths mm-hmm. you have might lead you to. And I think that was so valuable in order to just like see what's out there and not just like think, oh, I can only do certain things, but like know that hey, there's so many different things out there and you just need to explore it and take those opportunities. Absolutely. And that's what I'm saying. Like this class was so impactful because it taught us real life skills that ha- that affect us every day. That even now opportunity is, ne- opportunity is universal. It's not, it's not specific to a certain kind of career path or a certain kind of option in life. Even if you don't have a career specifically, opportunity itself is a lesson. And we're, instead of teaching kids, like you said, how to be people, how to live and survive in the world, we're teaching like we're teaching you how, and that's what it's saying. I don't know if, I don't know if you heard this before too, but there's a lot of people that say that you peak in high school. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people who make the really good grades and they do all well or whatever, but when they get out into the real world, they're still in a mom's house and they're still in, which is not a problem. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know, they're not, they don't have any ambition to go any, to go any further because they quote unquote peaked in high school. And I think that a lot of that comes and stems from this idea, like you said before, that intelligent people or people who are good at taking tests or who are good at getting grades, um, don't need any extra assistance, don't need any quote unquote street skills because street skills doesn't necessarily mean how to, how to sell drugs or how to whatever. It means how to make sure you know when opportunity presents itself to take it. It means how to know how to save your money so that that way in case something comes up, you got a stack, you got something saved away or packed away for it. It takes that skill of knowing, okay, can I afford this thing that I want or can I wait for this a second? 
and wait, delay gratification, which is another lesson that I learned in this class. And these are things that are still exigent in my life consistently. And I don't think even as even if I'm 20, 30, 40 years from now, I will still need those and use those skills. But that is something that was not taught to me until this class. And so I would have gone in my life thinking that I was whatever, or thinking I was doing something, but never taking opportunity. Never realizing, maybe maybe wait until I buy that. Let me have some delayed gratification. Let me wait, let me, let me, um, let me take my, uh, see how to invest money, whatever, whatever. Like I wouldn't know these things had I not taken that class. And I feel like it's so unfair, that especially, especially black youth, because we know for a fact that systemically black youth are not educated by financial literacy. It's just not a thing in our community as often. There are very few African-American people who are educated in that regard and try to pass that information on, but it's always not as easy to find. And white youth and white Americans, they have that in their family already. A lot of them already have a little bit of generational wealth. A lot of them have wills and, and um, uh, 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 guarantors and stuff like that. They have things that they know that, are, okay, I, you need to know how to do this one before. If they have, they have that um, uh, mindset, even if they're not, wealthy, they know how to keep money. They know how to make sure that their kids are good and that their kids know how to deal with money in the future. And our black youth are not given the same, the same um, respect and not given the same um, opportunities. And I think that that is so indicative of the systemic racism that exists not on the education system, but in our society, because we realize that in order to keep, in order for us to maintain, or in order for white people to maintain systemic power, they have to keep us from knowing what power we do have. Mm -hmm. And so in order to keep themselves higher, they have to keep us believing that we will never get to that height. When that information they have is no better than the information that we could get, because we could do the exact same things. There are, there are so many people in my family who don't have wills, who don't have life insurance, who don't have certain things that you need to have, who don't have uh, living wills to say what I want if I'm, if I'm a comatose or whatever, 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 and all this other good stuff. And it was so scary to me because I was like, oh my God, like in the black community, it's just something that's not talked about. Right. But in the white families, that's something that they already have already in place. They have safes for that shit. You know what I mean? Like, have you noticed that? Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's even something where it's like a lot of times like, black communities or black families who live in poverty they don't have anything to pass down in a will and eat and so it's something that's like so ingrained in our society and i think that this shows how much of a bigger issue education is it doesn't exist in a vacuum and i think that like even now like as so many places are having conversations about like critical race theory and states are like banning critical race theory from being taught in schools, like that's a product of it. They are making sure that, you know, especially black and brown students aren't able to see how racism affects them in their everyday lives. Mm. See how even if somebody isn't, you know, saying that black, all, all black people are inferior or whatever, even if they're not blatantly racist they still can have choices and make choices that perpetuate these systems of racism and I think that in these conversations like you know everybody's like oh critical race theory doesn't have a place in schools and it's like yes it does black students black and brown students should be able to you know learn 
the systems of oppression that are facing them, all of the different barriers that you know, prevent them from having the same success as white students. And, you know, some people are like, well, it's not fair to white students because it can make them uncomfortable or, you know, make them feel bad for, you know, things that, you know, generations before have done. And it's like, racism still happens to this day. (laughs) We've seen it so many times. We've seen it last summer. We've seen it throughout the year. We've seen it at the beginning of this year. We've seen it literally every day and we experience it every day. And so you're saying that we need to make sure that white students are comfortable, but we don't need to make sure that black students are comfortable. We don't need to make sure that black students can understand the barriers that they face every day, that black students can't understand why they have all of these barriers against them, that we don't need to make black students comfortable when they literally see the White House being stormed by people who hate them. We don't need to make black students comfortable at all because you don't see a value in black students. Mm. Mm. Say that one time, Daquan. These people who are against critical race theory don't see a value in their black students. Because they know that knowledge is power. And to give us the knowledge of how to try to dismantle it, or like you said, even just knowing what is used against you gives you the power to know how to fight it. And knowing that information, they know that will make them weaker. Giving that information to their white students. And, to, and the crazy part is critical race theory, not, it does, it's not just for black people or people of color. It's for white people because they need to be educated on how to be, because it's not enough to be. And I, I, I read this in um, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really great book. I'm, I, I was, I'm going back and forth with this. It's, it's, some, it's got some really good stuff in there. But one of the main things that he states in this, um, in this, in his book is that it's not enough to just not be racist. It's, you have to be anti-racist. You have to be working against system of the systems that work to benefit you and not others. It's not enough to just say, I'm not a bad person. I try not, I'm, I'm trying to be racist, so I'm, good. I'm a good person. It's not enough for that. And so educating our white youth as well as our black youth on racism and, 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 and at, a, at, the early, as, at an earliest age as possible is the only way that we're gonna be like, oh, that's a thing. And that needs to stop because the reality is white supremacy is not gonna be destroyed or taken down unless white people help us do it because they're the ones who created it. And even if it was your quote unquote ancestor and it was a fight long ago, whatever, whatever, you're still benefiting from the privileges that they created for you. Right. You are still benefiting from the racist society that was put in place by your ancestors. So the reality is, even though I'm not enslaved and I'm not an enslaved person, my ancestors were enslaved. And so that trauma still still goes down generationally and it still affects us even into this day and how we manage money and how we go about our life. So if that trauma still lives with us as black people today and we are not enslaved, that uh, that oppressive nature that you have instinctually is there. It's embedded in your mindset. It's embedded in how you have been taught and raised in your family because racism is taught. Right. And at the end of the day, if we're not doing that, we're not teaching the full history. If we're <gasps> teaching that the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery, we're not teaching the full history. If we're not teaching how, you know, you know, about Juneteenth, I know that it just became like a federal holiday, which, you know, 
But if we're not teaching what Juneteenth actually means and how systems of slavery are still in our society to this day in the prison industrial complex, Mm. we're not teaching the full history. So I think that like when it comes to critical race theory in schools, like it's not enough to teach this whitewash version of history. We are doing a disservice to all of our students, all of them, white, black, brown, whatever. We're doing a disservice to all of our students for not teaching them the full history. And that's, and that's on period. Like, and honestly, I was thinking about the education system as a whole and thinking about like the things that I wish were different about how it was done. So I have an idea that I want to kind of pass by you. So like everyone knows about the graduated driver's license systems that initially restrict the driving privileges of new drivers. And the way it works is that as those persons gain driving experiences and competencies, the restrictions are removed typically in three stages. The stages begin with a learner's permit and it's followed by an intermediate stage of provisional license and then a full privileged state license. Now, I wish we could apply that same theory to our education system and what I would like to call a graduated learning system. So elementary and middle school will still remain the same because those are rudimentary skills that we need in life. But I think that the shift should happen in eighth and ninth and 10th grade to be exposing you to career paths. Now the idea is that the students would get to choose seven or so different courses to take each year for those three years to give them a wide range of skill sets. Now, if they find out what they'd like to do at the time, they can choose to start narrowing their courses down on their focal career path. However, they have three years to figure it out what what excites them. So when they become juniors, they pick their major or focal career path and start taking the higher level courses that will get them on the track with their um, interests by giving them the proper education for that said career path. Now, senior year, they would continue to take these courses that um, with their major so that they, or if they decide to go to college, they have some information about their career goals as, as or as much information about it as possible and are ready to take the next step in their careers. And I think that in this situation and in that particular learning system, I think it would help people, especially, like I said, dancers, singers, actors, whoever, understand more about what their interests are without having to be um, structurally put into, like I said, these boxes that we have in our education system that teaches that we can only be certain career paths and that these are the only ones that are viable options. I do believe in honesty and transparency. So I feel like these courses should be available way earlier on. And I feel like it should be more of like a freshman seminar, if you will, like with all the courses there and be like, you can pick whatever ones you want. And it's not necessarily a graded thing or not. It's just, we're exposing you to it in whatever ones you pick. So you get to pick your seven courses, right? Eighth, eighth, ninth, and 10th. And you get to just, it's not graded. You just do it just to do it to see if you like it and to see if you enjoy it. And each year you kind of narrow it down so that you have a little bit more of a, um, a understanding of it. So that's my kind of idea of how I think. I mean, what do you think about that, Daquana? Do you think there's a different way that we could educate you? Yeah, I think that it's so important to kind of broaden what we feel like education should be. I think that like, you know, going to a university that kind of valued liberal arts to an, to an extent, um, but like <laughs> kind of extent. valued like thinking more broadly than just like what your career is going to be, but like, you know, taking different classes and exploring what's out there is so important. So I think that like, having some type of education system, especially when it comes to high school where students can take 
so many different classes based off of what they're just interested in and what they want to explore and exposing them to what's out there is so important. And also making sure that we're teaching students things that are applicable to them, that they're interested in, that they want to learn about. I think that's also so important. I'd say like my thing is like, I probably wouldn't say like career, um, just because I don't think the 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 purpose of education is just to like make somebody job ready. I think mm -hmm. that it's about like learning and you know getting a wide skill set mm -hmm. um, because like we're on a floating rock, um, all constantly thinking about our existence <laughs> and our purpose isn't just to labor to death. It's to be creative, <laughs> to do what we're passionate about. But I do like agree with you. Like it's we should have an education system where students can find their passions and hone their craft. Yeah, I think I just use the word career just to kind of have something like there, like, but like life path or something like that. Like, I feel like, honestly, like, you know, if, a, if I feel like having them exposed earlier on and not have it be something that's graded, like not having it be something that's like, whatever, it's like kind of like you can move forward in the course. So you just decide that's not the course for you. You know what I'm saying? If you're not getting the skills or you're not getting whatever it is, you just, you just move to another course. And it's like, okay, this isn't working for you. And it's just not, it's not because you're bad. It's just, it's just not for you. And I think that that would help people kind of, because I feel like we're all so like, I, like I said, I do feel like elementary school and middle school are definitely those, those rudimentary skills that we all need and they're all kind of exposing to. But I feel like, like I said, that eighth grade, ninth and 10th grade, I feel like we should really be like, that's kind of when hormones are starting to come out and, you know, you're starting to kind of find yourself a little bit more. And I feel like that is exactly what it should be. It should mirror how you grow up. You know what I mean? Like in, in those first few years in elementary and middle school, you're still kind of a kid. Whereas when you start to get into eighth grade, ninth grade, usually that's when puberty starts and you're starting to figure things out and your emotions are starting to get settled in and you're trying to figure out how to feel. So I think that the stress of trying to work in something and figure this out and you have to do it this way or whatever, and just being like, let's free up a little bit because you're already stressed enough living life. So let's get you exposed to things and let's just have you have, have fun. Like, you know what I mean? Like have a good time, like figure out what makes you happy so that that way, if you do decide to pursue a career or you don't or whatever the case may be because people still drop out, whatever. But if you do decide to uh, pursue a career, you have had those experiences that are able to prepare you for what that's going to require of you. And I think true transparency in school is what we're also lacking and not really letting people know that you can be an actor. It's difficult, but you can. Just like it's difficult to be a doctor or a lawyer. There's different, dip I think that there's this idea that, oh, you don't make it, but it's like, there are different levels of difficulty, uh, difficulty, or what is difficulty? How do you say it? <laughs> now you fucking up the word. But no, there's different levels of it in different career paths. So it's like, yes, being a doctor is hard, but also being an actor is hard in its own different ways. And they all have the different challenges in it. And I think that having school set up in a way that lets you know, if you decide to be a doctor, these are the things that are gonna be required of you. If you decide to be an actor, these are the things you're gonna run into, rejections and blah, blah, and whatever, whatever. So if you really wanna do this, there's a lot of work that goes into it that you have to do behind the scenes. So I think that, that, I think that in that sense, I feel like we just need to get out. And that just and that goes right back to that whole growth mindset thing. It's just letting people know that this is just an option. And right. that if you don't do well, it is not the end of the world. It just means you might need a little more help than your other peers, you know? 
And I think another benefit of that is it gives students agency over their education. They're able oh, yes. to like choose what they want to do and what they're interested in. And that's going to, that gives them a buy-in factor. They're like, I am interested in this subject. So I'm going to study more. I'm going to like do my best in it because it's something that I'm interested in. It's something that I'm passionate about. And I think that it's so important to like give students that option to be like, you know what? I really love math, for example. Yeah. And, you know, they go through, you know, they take, they explore different options, but if they find that math is like their thing, that they can take higher level math and take other classes that are really mm -hmm. advanced in their passion and be able to be successful. Or if somebody is like, you know, gets to, you know, 10th, 11th grade and be like, you know what, I still need time to explore. And they have that option to choose to explore more classes and explore themselves because, you know, everybody has a different path. Everybody, some people can be like, you know what, I want to do this. And they go out and do this and they love what they do. Some people, it takes them years on years to really figure out what they want to do. So I think that a big value in giving students that agency is that you also allow them to develop at their own pace, at their natural pace, because not everybody is going to know at a certain time, you know, this is what I'm going to do. But you give them that option. Absolutely. And you were talking about, um, you were telling me earlier about Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah. I want you, what were you saying about that? So Brown v. Board was this landmark Supreme Court case. I think it was like 1954, something like that. And it ruled that when it comes to schools, separate but equal is inherently unequal and desegregation should happen with all deliberate speed. Um, and so I wanted to pose the question to you that, do you think schools are no longer segregated? And what impact does that have on our education system? Schools are not legally segregated anymore, but they are absolutely still segregated. I vividly remember being in school and like being very uncomfortable sitting at a table full of white people, but also noticing that the tables full of white people were tables full of white people and tables full of black people were tables full of black people. And I think it has a really deep effect on us because instead of trying to understand and expose ourselves to different cultures, we go with what's safe and what's familiar instead of exposing ourselves to something that's different and, 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 and not within our quote unquote uh, um, um, daily life. And I think that that's a lot of the problem that we have in our school system about, and like we talked about earlier about having community-based learning versus individual-based learning too, also having that as an option because I think that when you are exposed to other cultures, you become a more worldly person, you become a more aware person, socially, uh, socially aware of other people's issues. And I think that the reason why a lot of the racism still exists also stems from that because we are not putting us, we're not letting us have these conversations. We're not letting our little black guy, our little black teenagers and, and white teenagers talk about the fact that they don't fear getting put over the police or that they do fear getting put over the police and why they fear those fears and stuff like that. Because we don't have those intermingled social circles, I think that that's a lot of the time why so many white people are still unaware of racism and how it affects black people. And not that we have to educate them and not that it's our job to, but I think that that is an aspect of why there are so many that are so oblivious to it. Maybe not necessarily against it, but just don't understand, oh, you deal with this shit all the time. You see what I'm saying? How, how do you feel? 
Yeah, I think that, you know, agreeing with you that, you know, we're not segregated on the books, but in practice, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I remember doing a project this past semester looking at like the South Carolina education system and, you know, thinking about how, you know, when the South Carolina Constitution said that the role of public education is to provide a minimally adequate education. Mm. But in reality, SC schools weren't providing even minimally adequate. Um, but, you know, something that I found in like my research and my studies was that so many South Carolina schools are hyper segregated, where you will have like over 90% of the school be black or, you know, a certain pop population. Um, and in those hyper hyper segregated black schools, you know, you disproportionately saw poverty rates of like 90% or higher. You disproportionately seen a lot more expulsion rates, a lot more um, disciplinary action, as well as just like student achievement being loads um, lower than the hyper segregated white schools, which were disproportionately in affluent neighborhoods, wealthier, they had less poverty rates, they had better test scores. And I think that shows that like our education system, like I said before, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's fun it functions through all of the different redlining and gerrymandering that mm -hmm. happens in our society. And when you have a school that's funded primarily on the the taxpayers who live there and their property taxes, you can see how a area that's disproportionately in poverty isn't going to have schools that are funded the same as affluent neighborhoods. And that's why you see so such a wide gap that's continually widening. Even as we think about COVID today and the COVID gap and people are talking about, our students are so behind, our students are so behind. And like, my question is behind who? Behind Ooh. students that didn't have to go to school during a global pandemic. And so I think that, you know, with this, whole thing of like desegregation sure it's not on the books but it's still in practice and it's still having so many implications for our students because they're not given the same tools they're not given the same experience they're not giving equitable treatment and care so do you think that i don't know you think like charter schools are the way to go then i think that when it comes to like charter schools and the whole school choice movement it's a mixed bag. I think that, you know, <laughs> I think that like for us, you know, we both graduated from a charter school. And mm -hmm. I think that like, I wouldn't be here without like the specialized education that, yeah. you know, happened. And I think that that's a, that's a benefit of charter schools is that, you know, they can have this educational plan and they can experiment a little bit more than, you know, traditional public schools. So there's room to experiment and really develop some kind of innovative system that like is for a specific educational outcome. So you have a lot of schools that's like for specifically for the arts, you know, for mm -hmm. math and science and you have all of those. So I think that like it can help out certain students, but I don't think that it's the solution just because like you have some places where they have an over-reliance on charter schools. They're like, yeah. our public school system, traditional schools are so bad that we're just gonna like create this new system and not fix our schools. Like you are putting a bandaid over the issue. You're not really fixing it. 
I think that I fully agree. I think that charter schools, I honestly don't think that charter schools should be a thing. And the reason why I think that is because I feel like charter schools are a way to fix the problem without making it, like you said before, a full solution to the problem within our public schools. The fact that public uh, charter schools exist in the first place, and that's not already ingrained in public education, because unfortunately, a lot of charter schools and private uh, charter schools require um, a payment or a funding. Not all of them are free. Not all of them are based on merit or things of that nature. Some of them require money that some people can't afford. There were plenty of art schools that I wanted to go to growing up, private charter schools or whatever, that just when I was not able to because I didn't have the funding to do so. And so I think that that is more indicative of the problem of the funding in our public school systems, that we can't have those options available within public schools and within public spaces. So the money that we use to fund um, those charter schools and private schools, I feel should be put back into the school systems in a way that allow us to be exposed, like I said before, to all those things so that you can have specialized fields in math and arts. So it's like you said before, it's a double-edged sword because in one way, it's a benefit to those who can afford it. Right. In another way, in, a, in another way, in the other bag of it, it's kind of like, uh, it can also, it's also like, if you can't afford it and you want to be in that career path. And let's also just be honest, like the entire school choice movement has roots in white flight, has roots in, you know, white people being like, hey, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be with these blacks. So like, I'm going to go to this other school because I want an education without them. And I think that like, even if you know, I don't know if you were there when we had like that school choice rally by the state that we went to. And like, if you notice, like that crowd was very, very white. And we were like the one black charter school that was there. And so like, even the school choice movement has, you know, these racist roots that we need to, you know, unveil and unpack. So are you saying, Daquan, that white people are yet again being racist? Are you saying, Daquan, that white people are making another way to put themselves in a position of power and prestige to outclass black people? Is, is that what you're saying, Daquan? Done it again. Once again. <laughs> Lowering the bar for your race. <laughs> So, so many little boys and girls grow up never knowing the full scope of what their culture has contributed to society and history. So it's time for a change. Let's take a pause, rewind and remind the world just how <laughs> we did that. Now, in celebration of Pride Month, I'd like to highlight Stormy Delavere. Now, in the article, 16 Queer Black Pioneers Who Made History, written by Gwen Alvarez and Ariel Joe, um, we find out that Delavery was a biracial butch lesbian who was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and was also a performer. As a teenager, she was joined the Ringling um, Brothers Circus, where she rode jumping horses. Then from 1955 to 1969, Delavery toured the Black Theater Circuit as the MC in the, on, the only drag king of the Jewel Box Review. Now the first rate, the, the Jewel Box Review, which is the first 
racially integrated drag venue in North America. Now she worked as a bouncer for several lesbian bars in New York City in the 80s and the 90s and held a number of leadership positions in the Stonewall Veterans Association. Now she also served the community as a volunteer street uh, patrol worker and as a result was called the guardian of the lesbians in the village. Now beyond her LGBTQ activism, she also organized and performed at fundraisers for women who suffer from domestic violence and their children. I mean, black women constantly upping, upping the ante, constantly. Right. Let it be known, but I think that's such a cool history and cool story to hear about because it's so important to you know learn about our elders as we talk about mm -hmm. Pride Month. Um, and so for mine, I'm highlighting somebody whose work has I've seen all four years of college and has been influential in a lot of the classes that I've that I've taken. Um, so I will be ha um, highlighting Marlon Riggs. Um, so this comes courtesy of blackpast.org. If you want to read more, you can go there. Um, but Marlon Riggs was a black gay writer, filmmaker, and social activist. Riggs, a graduate of Harvard and UC Berkeley, worked for several years in film under various directors until he began directing and producing his own documentaries, all of them being inclusive social commentaries on Black identity and the role of African-Americans in the United States. His first documentary, Ethnic Notions, focused on the stereotypes of African-Americans that haunt American society. His second full-length docu documentary, Tongues United, was dedicated to breaking the silence of the Black gay male community. Mm. Color Adjustment, uh, another of his documentaries, was an indictment of the treatment of African-Americans in popular American television. The final film of Riggs' career, Black is Black Ain't, provided a unifying theme for his body of work. In Black is, Riggs strikes out up to find a definition of Black identity that includes all varieties of the Black experience. He challenges the viewer to replace imagined homogenous unified culture with a vision of vastly different people who come together as a community. Riggs, who narrates most of the film from his hospital bed, remained hopeful that even those on the margins of the Black community can mm. be recognized as legitimate parts of the African-American world. Unfortunately, Riggs did not live to see the completion of Black is Black Ain't. He died on April 5th, 1994 of an AIDS-related illness before filming was finished. Black queer talent. I love to see it. I love to see it. That is an amazing story. I mean, and this was in, what was it, a 1919, what now? Uh, Black is Black Ain't came out in 1990s. But he was uh, making, uh, he was making documentaries about a night in like, it's in the 80s, right? Yeah, his first documentary was 1987. The Bravery. In that time, The Bravery. Like, it's just, it's, I mean, sometimes we almost forget how lucky we are in this new day and age. It's not as a, it's not amazing. It's not perfect, but we are just definitely in a position now that things are such, like you said, uh, like we talked about before, age is no longer a death sentence anymore. And like, you know, uh, being gay is not always in some places an uh, instant beat down or, or uh, murder. Now it does still happen, 
but not a, but it's it's not as prolific as it used to be back in the day. Right. We and we're starting to actually see voices. Go ahead. We sit on we sit on their shoulders. Like I just think about how Marlon Riggs really focused on bringing marginalized people to the spotlight. Like that's literally what we're doing with this show. So that's why I had to highlight him because like hey, hey. sitting on his shoulders. Honestly, and I think that that's something to be remembered. That's that's something to be in remembrance of to know that so many people have fought for us, and our and we have to keep the fight going to make sure that the the youth of the, of the of tomorrow don't have to deal with being killed because they're a black trans woman, or being killed because they're a black trans man, or gay man, or whoever, or non-binary whatever person. The facts are that we keep fighting and we keep these conversations going because baby, they are necessary. So baby. <laughs> As always, thank you all so much for watching. And don't forget to keep talking to us down below in the comment box. Don't forget to give this video a thumbs up. And if you are listening to us on our podcast, please rate and review us on whatever platform that you are using. If you want to follow us on social media, our handles are at Andre Talks A Lot and at Daquan950. You can also follow our podcast on Instagram at The Melon Margin for updates of new content. We will see you all next week on the Melanin Margin where conversations about race (laughs) are never off the table. Goodbye now.